Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, everybody. Nikki, thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Um, Nikki, you're based in Grange, uh, a livestock systems researcher. How long have you been there, or could you tell us a little bit about yourself before you begin your, your presentation this morning? No problem, Andy. Uh, so I'm here um, implementing the Dairy Calf to Beef uh, research program at Chagas Grange since uh, the autumn of 2018, I would have would have begun. So in today's presentation, we'll look at some of the data from, from the start of that journey. Uh, but prior to that, I suppose I would have done my PhD at Chagas Moor Park, where I worked on uh, perennial ryegrass evaluations uh, and identifying new grazing traits. So really taking a lot of that type of a background that I had, I, I brought that forward into implementing, you know, uh, really sustainable grass-based production systems. And I suppose the quest now that I have is trying to identify animals and animals that have the certain traits that allow them to excel within that grass-rich environment. So really, you know, it's just taking your learnings from one part of your career, bring them on to the next part and, and implementing those. And look, the same principles apply. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the same overall uh, objective. So look, grass is our main feed stuff. You know, 80 to 90% of our feed requirement is met from forage grown on our farm. Uh, so, you know, that, that background has really, you know, given, given me a good footing in that. But now the challenge is to identify the animal that can best use that and reduce their age of slaughter, their impact on the environment, and most importantly, you know, deliver a sustainable margin for the farmers that are, that are undertaking uh, the, the, the production of them. So if you can um, fire up your presentation and share your screen with us and, and begin your presentation. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, today, I'm just going to discuss a little bit about, you know, the added value that can be got from using high merit beef sires on our dairy herd. And I suppose the focus of today's presentation is on, I suppose, dairy farmers. You know, it's very timely at the moment. Dairy farmers are, you know, have begun the breeding season. And really, you know, every farmer should have a beef breeding policy in place for their herd uh, for this year and the subsequent years going forward. And look, lots of farmers have had that, you know, and, and maintain that, you know, over time. But I think we need certainly do need a renewed emphasis on that. And also, I, I'd like to uh, appeal to anyone involved in the industry at various levels, you know, that that they be conscious of the importance of uh, dairy beef breeding policy and put that forward. Uh, to, to, to farmers uh, that they may be working with. And also for beef farmers, you know, today I want to outline the importance of high quality uh, beef animals and what they can contribute to their business. Because ultimately, if the beef farmer doesn't require a higher quality animal or have a higher genetic potential, you know, it, 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 it won't be, be necessarily, we have to give a market signal back to dairy farmers that we want, you know, higher merit animals that are, you know, capable of sustaining our systems. So I suppose just to begin and, and looking at the structure of the dairy beef industry in Ireland, you know, we have an excess of a million calves available for beef production from the dairy herd on an annual basis. So it's a really, you know, it's a big outlet of calves that are there. Um, and I suppose at the moment in excess of, you know, we're just approaching an excess of 60% of Irish beef cattle processed in Irish meat plants are of direct dairy origin. So it's a really important aspect of our beef industry. So we have to be very conscious of the decisions that are made on dairy farms, that they have a massive impact on our credentials as beef producing uh, nation. 
Uh, but I suppose if we look at those million calves that are available, you know, about a third of them remain on dairy farms and are sold off at later stages, either as, as wean calves at the end of the summer, as yearlings the following spring, or in fact, about 12% of the calves that are bred in dairy farms are, are brought right through to slaughter on the farms that they're born on. Another 30 calves are traded farm to farm. So they're really, you know, entering into our dairy beef systems, uh, you know, purchasing calves at, you know, three to four weeks of age, artificially rearing them and bringing them right through to slaughter. And I suppose the final third of calves that we, 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 we have, uh, or the final third, uh, uh, the final outlet of calves that we have are live exports, uh, early slaughter systems, and I suppose there's some on-farm mortalities, et cetera, where, where, where some calves are lost out of the system. Uh, so really, it's that area of, of export and early, early slaughter systems that I think there's real opportunity, you know, to displace the number of calves entering into those outlets and to convert them into highly valuable calves that can enter into our dairy beef systems and, and contribute positive, positively to that. Uh, so if we look at the number of farms, you know, that are purchasing calves year on year, we've just about 10,000 dairy beef farmers going out purchasing and artificially rearing calves on an annual basis and they're relatively small uh, systems and they often complement you know another on-farm enterprise such as suckling or sheep or, or tillage uh, and uh, they're only purchasing about 37 calves uh, but there's a major challenge out there you know when, when when icbf have looked at it they can see that there's a very high attrition rate in farmers rearing calves year on year and when they looked at it over a five-year period only 39% of farmers that purchase calves in year one of that cycle remain purchasing calves in year five. So that really puts forward a lot of research questions for us as to try and understand why are farmers are opting out of the system. And, you know, there, there's lots of uh, there's lots of different reasons. Um, you know, look, at there's a lot of skill involved in, in, art, in rearing calves. There can be a lot of disease challenge, respiratory, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, it's the margin. Uh, that has been a, a achieved from these systems, you know, has been has been challenging. Like all beef systems, uh, uh, you know, it it um it, it has been a challenge for many farmers, uh, and and they have opted out. But really, why it has been a challenge is is you know, are the calves of high enough merit? Is the technical efficiency on farm on farm, you know, via grassland, is that high enough to get the animal performance targets that that we need to to achieve? And also health, you know, if we've incidences of health in early life, we know that they can have a, a negative impact on lifetime animal performance and, and contribute greatly to the cost of production. So really, we need to try and address those challenges. But there's massive benefits of, of, um, of an improved dairy beef breeding policy. And if we look at them on, on dairy farms, you know, if we can have calves of higher genetic merit, ultimately, they will be of in increased demand by beef farmers in the spring and having you know a reliable outlet for your calves in the spring it can ensure they move off farm in a timely fashion uh, freeing up you know uh, valuable resources such as shed space uh, pressure on labor you know so there can be real efficiency you know it, it's not getting more money for your calves it's getting a more reliable outlet getting calves moved off farm and you know, that there's massive, massive economic gains to come from that. But probably even more importantly, the social acceptance of, of um, you know, our, our systems that are producing a really valuable calf that's valued, you know, in, in, in another system 
you know, that's really important that our dairy systems have that outlet and are producing a top quality product that can go on and contribute positively to, 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 to agriculture um, in, in this country. Uh, and also, you know, dairy beef is going to play a really important role in herds that are, you know, chasing genetic gain and that are implementing high levels of selection intensity and been real, you know, fussy about the dams that breed their future replacements. And I think we're at a, we're at a time now where we're not necessarily seeing that much expansion. We're seeing farmers increase in their selection intensity. And that means that there's more of a role uh, in your herd to use beef bulls. And really, if you don't have, you know, a high level of beef, beef usage within your herd, you have to ask yourself the question, how intense is the selection? Or, you know, how good a breeding policy have you in place that you're not using a high level of high quality beef sires from the very start of the breeding season? And really, if we look at the beef side, you know, the benefits of having a, you know, a, a reliable and consistent source of high merit dairy beef animals, you know, the increased availability early on in the spring, you know, that's going to be really important going forward. Uh, and we know that these high merit animals, you know, they're going to bring greater efficiency over, you know, inferior beef animals or, you know, uh, purebred dairy uh, animals. We know that there's efficiency in terms of feed usage, the conversion efficiency of that feed into carcass. But importantly, you know, ultimately it'll lead to greater economic and environmental efficiency via reduced age of slaughter or increased carcass output at a younger age. And really, you know, we have the opportunity to produce a really, really high quality product from our dairy beef animals. You know, in terms of the weight specification, it can produce, you know, a, a very favorable carcass size and a very good meat eating quality. It is a great ability to, you know, to lay down flesh and have a nice dressing. Um, but what we found is that we can produce, you know, an inspect carcass from a predominantly grass-based diet. And we're achieving up to 87% of the lifetime feed requirements of our dairy beef animals in our research herds uh, being, being filled on a dry matter basis from homegrown forage, grazed grass and conserved grass silage. But really the nationally, you know, a, a renewed emphasis on dairy beef uh, is going to play an important role uh, in meeting Irish agriculture's greenhouse gas reduction targets. And I know Andrew Cromie was on last week and he outlined, you know, how it's going to contribute to that. So look, I won't go over too much this week, uh, but I think, you know, it's going to play a really, really important role to, to, in enhancing our sustainability. And it'll be on an economic level, environmental and social. So really, you know, it, it is one of those real areas of improvement uh, for, for enhancing our sustainability. But I suppose on farm, you know, there's a couple of decisions that farmers have to make. And look, there's various tools there that can help in making these decisions. And I suppose it will begin with bull selection. And we're very fortunate now that we have, you know, many indexes available, but the dairy beef index, you know, is, is one that's there for farmers. Uh, to identify bulls that offer the best balance of calving traits as well as carcass traits. Uh, you know, so it can identify bulls that suit the needs of both cohorts of farmers, dairy and beef. And, you know, I think it's a really important tool as well in developing sires for future use on the dairy herd. You know, we now have a breeding goal for developing sires with the dairy beef market in mind. Uh, cow selection is going to be really important. And, you know, 
at the start of the year, you need to sit down, identify the cows that are going to get, you know, going to breed your future replacement or the cows that are going to breed your beef calf. And really that cow, the parity of the cow, you know, that'll determine, you know, the bull you can use. And I suppose, for instance, not all cows, if they're, if they're going to get a beef bull, they're breeding, they're cycling early on in the season. You know, you're probably not as sensitive to a bull with a, that offers a slightly longer gestation length at that very early stage in the breeding season. So there's different bulls to suit different cows at different time points. And, you know, it's really important to have a very tailored dairy brief breeding policy, um, you know, and have a very similar, you know, attention to detail that you would have on your selecting the sires of your future heifer replacements. Uh, the timing of when we use the beef straw is really important. And I suppose looking back, traditionally, these beef straws go in, you know, in the later part of the breeding season uh, after you've, you've inseminated enough cows to generate your, your, your replacement heifer crop. But we know a sex semen, more fertile herds, and probably a requirement for lower replacement rates, there's now more of a role to use beef bulls throughout the breeding season. And we found, you know, if looking at our research animals, that date of birth, you know, plays a big role in explaining a lot of the variation in our, in our carcass performance. And for instance, if we go a week later, in, in every week later, our beef calf is born, it can reduce carcass weight by three to three and a half kilos. So it's a really, really important uh, trait. And it, it, why it's important is date of birth, the date a calf is born, will determine its ability to utilize graze grass over that first grazing season. Um, and that's really, really important uh, in dairy beef production. But as well, we talked about picking beef bulls, but we have to be conscious that, you know, maybe not all beef bulls are better. And we have to be, you know, only ensuring that we pick the best bulls there in terms of carcass traits, but that are also acceptable in terms of gestation length and calving ease. And if we look at the, Alan Toomey did this analysis uh, previously, and he looked at the distribution of Angus and Holstein Frisians for carcass, uh, carcass weight uh, PTA. And if you look at the graph, you can see in the green bar and uh, Holstein Frisian, and in the black bars, we have our Angus. And we can see that there's an overlap in terms of the high end of the Ang uh, Holstein Frisians and the lower end of the scale in terms of Angus bulls, in terms of their carcass weight potential. So really, that, that's not those beef bulls offer little advantage over, you know, uh, Holstein Frisian animals in terms of carcass performance. So we're not really getting the advantage of the beef animal in terms of carcass performance from that, that type of selection. So really, we need to shift the focus and move up, you know, up into those positive figures in terms of the beef bulls that we're using on our dairy cows to ensure that we, we add and inject in some more efficiency in, into the scenario. And I suppose we, uh, I suppose back in 2018 and 2019, the, the, these are the two uh, calf crops that fed into this data that we have on the table here. And really what we did here in the first column, we have our Holstein Frisian animal, our high EBI type animal. And we could see the type of performance we could achieve from them. And look, it's really good relative to the national average. So we were just under 23 months age at slaughter, uh, producing a 300 kilo carcass. But we can see at an O minus a confirmation uh, grade, you know, that is out of spec in terms of confirmation. And that is a, you know, so we're producing a sufficient quantity of, of, of beef, 
but it's beef of a lower value. We're not maximizing our price per kilo. And that really limits the margin that we can return uh, in, in those systems. Uh, whereas we see probably very comparable levels of carcass output from our, our Angus-sired animals in both of our groups. But what they did inject was confirmation. And that helped maximize the value of each of those kilos of beef. And it also reduced age at slaughter back down uh, under 22 months of age. But I suppose we're a little bit disappointed when we looked at the performance between the high Aberdeen Angus, the high AA, and the low AA, uh, where, you know, these were bulls selected. So these were bulls used commercially on the dairy herd, but divergent for carcass weight and confirmation. So they're, they're top end and lower end of the scale. But unfortunately, there wasn't an awful lot differentiating between the high end Angus bulls and the low end Angus bulls used on the dairy herd at that time. But I think you know, over the last number of years, we have seen, you know, better offering of bulls and we've seen better uptake of the higher merit bulls. And we'll see that reflected in some of the later data that we look at. But really what this data did show that when we got our system right, our truly grass-based system, high quality pasture, a long grazing season. And when we managed the animals within that optimum environment, you know, we could achieve you know, very good performance, big reductions, probably about five months younger in terms of age at slaughter at a comparable weight to the national average animal of the same, the same, uh, the same, um, the same breed makeup. So that gave us great hope that there was, there was something here. There was a lot of variation in age at slaughter. Um, and it kind of, you know, you'll see some of the later questions that that rose for us. I suppose when we look at our system performance in terms of economics, although there was maybe only slight improvements in confirmation and a slight carcass weight advantage, you can see that when they multiply up across every kilo and every animal on the system, that, you know, it could be a very uh, a, a, a profitable system with a net margin there of 720 euro for a high merit animal versus 500 on our high EBI type animal. Uh, and also, you know, that's on an economic level environmentally um you know it's going to have a very positive effect as you know the younger age of slaughter ultimately means that we have a lower stocking rate in that system so we've less slurry building up the animal is producing less emissions as they're not alive for as long a period of time and we also displace you know imported concentrate out of the system as well because of the requirement for for a shorter finishing period with with those beef cross animals but look, I think there's so much more scope and we are achieving a lot more than what we're achieving, you know, four or five years ago even. And I suppose, look, I, I just put this together for, for different dairy discussion groups that, that we'd be engaging with. And it's, it's from a, a paper by Dunabury, and it looks at the effect of dam type when weighted to a range of sires. And really, I suppose if we look at the first column, we have our Holstein Frisian dam. And in the second column, I, I've chosen a 50-50 Jersey cross Holstein Frisian. And the reason I've picked that cow, you know, we come across a lot of farmers that have that cow type and they think that there's, there's probably no hope to, to implement a better beef breeding policy on that cow type that, you know, she has Jersey in her and, you know, it's not possible to produce an on-spec carcass. So really, you know, we, 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 we want to, you know, um, try and address that challenge or that, that kind of conception that, that, that is, is out there. Um, so if we look at the bottom column and if we look at when those two respective cow types um, or bottom row, 
when those two respective cow types are mated to a beef sire. So your average Angus sire, he's probably plus six kilos for carcass weight being an, an average Angus. And when it, that bull is mated on a Holstein Frisian cow, he can produce a car- they can produce a steer with a carcass of 327 kilos, uh, but with a relatively good grade, O plus, borderline, O equals. And that's in contrast to that same bull mated on a 50-50 uh, Jersey Cross Holstein Frisian animal, which results in a carcass of 314 kilos. Uh, it's only you know, 14, 13 to 14 kilos lighter, and it's probably a, a grade less on the confirmation grade. So it's probably not as big as what might be perceived out there uh, nationally. Uh, but I would ask the question, if we used a higher merit beef bull on that 50-50 cross animal, you know, can we achieve comparable or even better performance? Uh, so that's really what farmers need to embrace. It's not using the same bull on cows with two different beef merits themselves. You know, if the cow is of a lower merit, we need to up our efforts on the sire that's chosen for her to, you know, ensure that we produce an animal that's capable of producing an, an inspect carcass. But I suppose this data was looking at your national average animal of those categories. And we can see that, that they were producing this type of carcass weight at 28 months. And just bear in mind, I suppose, bring forward, just remember the Holstein Frisian bull in the middle row, mated on the Holstein Frisian cow, producing a, a carcass weight at 320 kilos. We'll see in some of the later slides in our research systems, grass-based systems, that we're achieving that performance on Holstein Frisians, but at, at 24 months of age. So, we're, you know, there is massive gains to be made uh, by, you know, using better genetics, but ultimately implementing a better uh, production systems. And then these are just a few illustrative uh, pictures from Chagas bred cattle, um, you know, that went through uh, the Tully, uh, Tully Test Performance Center in, in Kildare. And just this animal ahead of us, he's of a very low commercial beef value of three euros. And that's because, you know, his genetic makeup is he's 50% Jersey, 50% Holstein Frisian. So he's typically that 50-50 cross animals. But after, you know, an intensive, uh, a very intensive uh, finishing period, that animal only produced a 290 kilo carcass, a P plus, so very, very poor confirmation grade. You know, he's going to take massive price penalties. He's going to miss out on your quality assurance payment. Uh, but look, he was there in terms of flesh, three equals is, is acceptable. Uh, but if we take that in, in, in contrast to this animal, so again, this animal is an example of a limousine sire a high-merit limousine sire been used on that 50-50 cross dam. Uh, and you can see that it increased the commercial beef value of that animal massively up to 81 euros. Um, and that's driven by their improved uh, feed intake figures, their improved carcass weight, and improved, most importantly, that the carcass confirmation is what's going to improve massively. But we can see that even on that Jersey cross cow, that high-merit limousine sire could produce an animal that under 24 months of age could produce a 349 kilo carcass with a brilliant grade of R plus. Uh, and, you know, you can see the, the positive margin of 1,574 euros that that, that animal's carcass came into, you know, um, last January or February. So really just, I wanted to show those two examples, you know, that there is scope to produce high quality carcasses, even if we, we, we do have low merit dams that, by putting enough focus on the sire, we really can add greater value to them. So I think every herd, regardless of cow type, 
or what you may perceive cow type to be in terms of beef merit, you know, that there is scope there to make improvements. So all everyone can make improvements and there is a massive need for us to do that. And I think these animals are two good examples of those improvements that are possible. So certainly Andrew talked about it last week on his webinar about the need for, for greater integration of, of dairy and beef. And, you know, that that is is paramount. And, you know, we need to achieve that if we're if we're if we want to achieve, you know, or enhance our sustainability, you know, we really do need to, to work on, on getting this integration. And I suppose we need to work on improving the profitability. So we need to you know, ensure that we generate animals of high enough genetic merit that they can continue to produce animals that are capable of delivering a positive margin for our beef farms. Because if, if they don't, you know, we won't have these systems and we won't have, have, have these farmers going back to buy calves. And you know, that can have a, another impact then on the profitability of the dairy farms if they're having to carry calves for longer or um, you know, holding them there, putting pressure on, on resources on farm, that's going to impact on their profitability. If for the environment, you know, Andrew outlined it last week, the huge gains through genetics, improvement in genetics, you know, the impact that can have on the environment, uh, you know, they're hugely positive. Uh, but also dairy beef production, because of the fact we don't have to offset the, the emissions from a dam, uh, you know, we, we know that it has a lower impact per kilo of beef produced. Uh, in, in comparison to, to, to alternative uh, suckler beef production. Uh, and the social acceptance, you know, dairy beef is going to go a long way in enhancing the social accept, acceptance of our, our dairy production systems. Uh, and I suppose it can produce a very socially acceptable product because dairy beef, you know, it really can be a truly grass-based product produced in, you know, using our natural resources that are available. So really, I think, you know, we can really get positives on each of those pillars from a high quality dairy beef industry. So I suppose having looked at some of the earlier studies, just from one or two of those slides that we had up, we could see the gains that were achieved. It wasn't necessarily what we set out to do, but it was just from doing, running and implementing a very, very optimized production system, the gains that we could achieve in, in reducing age of slaughter. So we went back and we, we, we tried to look at it and see, you know, could we do something more on this front? So the objective of this study that we put in place was to quantify the gains achievable in reducing age of slaughter through genetic selection and optimizing grassland nutrition. So the study design that we put in place was a, a three by three factorial. So we had three animal genetic groups or genotypes. We had an early age of slaughter, a late age of slaughter Aberdeen Angus animal, and we had the top four uh, sires from the economic breeding index, so top four uh, Holstein Friesian sires. And we assigned each of those three genetic groups to three different feed managements. So we implemented different feeding strategies over the, over the calves first summer at pasture, and again uh, during the second summer at pasture. And I suppose the age of slaughter EBV that, that, that was developed for this study it was generated from the national dairy beef population, and we selected steer and heifer systems for the animals that, that, that made up the genetic valuation. And we didn't want to confound the data, you know, if there was young bulls or more intensive feedlot type systems feeding in data. You know, we want an animal that's going to perform in a grass-based system. So we, 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 we felt that steers and heifers, you know, were the most representative of that. 
uh, and the aged slaughter EBV that 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 was um, generated was was corrected for carcass weight, carcass conformation, and carcass fatness. So we wanted to identify, you know, while all those things were constant, we wanted to see animals that could produce an unspec carcass but at a reduced age, and that's what we went about doing, and we we think that we're we are achieving that. So it really is designed to be, you know very much an under 24 month type system at uh, the stocking rate look we don't know where the stocking rate will end up depending on the age of slaughter you know we, we will have a massive variation between the systems that have you know high merit anguses uh, versus uh holster and frisian animals you know we we we'll see a little later on there's a wide wide gap in terms of the age of slaughter that's achieved uh, from them so that's going to have an impact on the organic nitrogen level of those farm systems and the overall farm stocking rate, and ultimately its impact on the environment. Uh, all calves are reared on uh, previously identified uh, milk feeding levels. So in the first years of the study, we compared different nutritional strategies in early life of, of the calf rearing, and we identified the four litre or half a kilo of milk replacer fed to calves per day uh, from three weeks of age uh, up to a weaning weight of 90 kilos you know, was the optimum. So everything that we rear through our system is reared on that system to great success. And the three management systems that we have in place is a grass only or very much conventional. So this is where calves are, you know, put to pasture, they're weaned off concentrate two to three weeks post turnout, and they remain on a grass only diet for the first grazing season. And again, for the second grazing season, they're on a grass only diet right up until housing uh, far uh, prior to slaughter. At the intermediate group, we decided that we'd supplement these calves one kilo of concentrates per day in addition to graze grass over the first grazing season uh, and grass only uh, for the second grazing season. And our high group, these were supplemented with a kilo a day as a calf, the same as group, the intermediate group, uh, but we reintroduced concentrate from the 1st of July uh, or towards the end of the second grazing season to see could we manipulate these animals' age of slaughter through nutrition and genetics to produce an on-spec carcass without the need of going into a shed for an intensive finishing period at the end of the second grazing season? And just some of the animal measurements that were undertaken. Uh, and I suppose, uh, you know, growth, obviously, uh, we weigh cattle every two weeks and we get, you know, very accurate average daily gain targets for that animal throughout their lifetime. And we can relate that back to, you know, different nutritional or management strategies, as well as the genotypes. Uh, intake, I think, is, is a really, we're getting lovely data coming from this. And ultimately, you know, animals that suit a grass-based production systems, we know in dairy systems, you know, cows with a higher voluntary intake of bulky forages, you know, they probably perform, you know, exceptionally well in our grass-based production system. So we're interested to see, is there a similar uh, trend happening in, in beef animals suited to that grass-based system? And there could be a re-rank. These may not necessarily be the best animals on a more intensive indoor finishing diet, but we're interested in grass-based production, and that's why intake and grazing behavior are really important to us. So Jamie O'Driscoll is the PhD student working on this, and he's currently um, undertaking a, another run, another intake run. So he's using the inalkane method to estimate the dry matter intake of, of our animals at pasture. And he's doing this on these cattle uh, uh, when they've been supplemented in the second part of the grazing season as well. So ultimately, 
you'll be able to see is there a difference in the substitution rate when offered concentrates of these uh, cattle of the differing genotypes. And as well as that, we do intake indoors. Uh, but also the grazing behavior, there's really interesting data coming from this. We can see higher merit animals, you know, they probably have a better grazing behavior and better rumination behavior, uh, you know, and we probably see that they're really suited to a grass-based system. And, you know, those, those, um, those grazing traits that they possess, they seem to be able to fuel the higher average daily gain or higher growth rate that that animal is achieving and ultimately are allowing it produce an on-spec carcass at a younger age. We also do a lot of linear and skeletal measurements to look at the development of these animals throughout their lifetime. Uh, we look at muscle and fat deposition of the animals using ultrasound scanning technology at different time points. And in particular, I'll present some of the data from the end of the second grazing season, because ultimately it's that time point that we're really interested in. You know, is an animal, have they sufficient fat depth to allow slaughtering at the end of that second grazing season? Uh, you know, that's really is of interest to us. And obviously we've our, our basic carcass measurements on the Europe grid for confirmation and fatness. Uh, we also measure kidney and channel fat internally in the carcass. You know, it is a, it is a, a, a fat tax on the animals and takes up the use of energy to, to deposit, you know, a fat that has to be trimmed away from, from the internal cavities of the, the carcass. And we also measure primal yield. So we break up the carcass into the different uh, cuts and assign them to different value categories. So if we look at the different live weight performance, you know, we know we've all our different targets at the different time points in the animal's life. But if we look at our, our three genotypes, um, we can see the arrival weights are the exact same. So as you'd expect, there's no difference in the arrival weight of the three genotypes or the three feed management groups because we haven't implemented the feed management differences at, at that stage. And again, at weaning, no difference. Weaning at the 90 kilos, no difference of genotype or feed management. So that's what we really you know, would expect to see in those. However, if we go, go forward and look at the housing weight of these animals at the end of the, the first grazing season, we can see the genotype come into play. We can see the early animals, so the early age of slaughter, uh, Angus animal has a weight advantage at housing. And that's really important. And, you know, it, it'll stand to their subsequent performance uh, after thereafter. Um, so we can see a significant genotype effect at the end of the first grazing season. But interestingly, we see no effect of the feed management. So that kilo a day that we fed those calves over the first grazing season had no impact on animal uh, uh, live weight performance at the end of the first grazing season. And there was no detectable difference thereafter, uh, you know, of that kilo a day over the first grazing season. And that's, you know, that's in that instance where we had really high quality pasture. We had the same date of birth, the same genetic makeup in each of those groups. Obviously, if you have very young calves, there probably will be a better response from the younger calves rather than the older calves. Uh, if we look at the turnout weight, again, those high merit early age slaughter animals, they continue to grow at a higher growth rate during the first winter indoors and were turned out well ahead of target. You know, your tar target on the 1st of March is 330 kilos. We can see the only group that was ahead of that was the high merit animal. So the high merit animal is more capable of achieving those minimum growth requirements and, and, and uh, you know, that are outlined in our dairy beef production blueprints. You know, they are capable of, of achieving them. 
And then if we jump forward and look at the housing weight, so at the end of the second grazing season, we can see again across all the different feed managements, the early group of animals, you know, were 40 kilos heavier than their other Angus comrades. Um, and we can see that the feed management kicked into play. So this represents the feed management, you know, the animals that were supplemented with a barley-based concentrate grown natively at the end of the second grazing season, that this, um, this helped, you know, uh, improve animal live weight performance and uh, the, the deposition of fat on some of the important points on the animal. But it maybe didn't necessarily mean the same to each of the animal categories. It did put more weight in them, but it may not have actually got, for example, the Holstein Frisians grew more, but they didn't get any, any flesh here. And if we just look at some of those um, ultrasound scanning uh, results of these animals at the end of the second grazing season, you know, we can see very little difference really between the two Angus groups, uh, the early and late group, uh, you know, that they had an equal ability to flesh. We know that the weight, there was big weight differences, but they had an equal ability to, to lay down fat and become ripe. Um, so that is important. We can, we can see the advantage that those two breeds brought you know, over a Holstein Frisians. You can see the Holstein Frisian animal, you know, had lower subcutaneous fat, you know, across the rib, the lumbar, uh, on the rump. It was always significantly lower uh, than our Angus comrades. Uh, and and as, as well as that, the muscle depth, the depth of that strip line on those animals was lower as well. Um, as well as that, they had a, there was no difference in the IMF. So the IMF represents the percentage of fat that is 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 uh, that occupies the ribeye of the animal, and we know that that's you know very favourable. Uh, you know a higher level of that is very favourable uh, as you know there, there's in enhancements to the, the 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 perceived meat eating quality. You know with higher levels of intramuscular fat. Uh, but look, we can see the feed management it kicked into play. So the animals that were supplemented late on at the end of the second grazing season they had a deeper muscle depth and they also had more fat on the rump of the animal and overall they had a higher body condition score so that was important to identify that there was a the genotypes played a role as well as the the, the feed feeding the animals from the first of july in the second grazing season could help manipulate the deposition of fat uh, on these animals and ultimately, this is the performance that we achieved. So if we look at the, the first uh, section, the GO category, that is the grass only uh, category. So very much a conventional system. So these animals, they all, these weren't supplemented in the second grazing season and none of them were fit to be slaughtered at the end of the second grazing season. And they had to go forward for an intensive indoor finishing period. Uh, and we can see the effect of the early genotype. Uh, we can see, you know, about 25 kilos extra carcass weight uh, from that animal. After the same number of feed days, the same age of slaughter, uh, we, we saw that we had an extra, you know, 25 kilos of carcass weight. So that's a really, really important uh, factor there. Uh, and if we look at our Holstein Frisian animal, we see that they produced a comparable level of carcass weight to our, our early or high merit Angus, but it was at a, a significantly lower carcass conformation. Um, and it was after an extra 70 days of intensive indoor finishing. And we know the impact, you know, it required twice the amount of concentrate to be fed over the finishing period. 
you know, and it's going to produce, it's going to put a, a higher stocking rate on that Holstein Friesian system. It's going to produce a lot more slurry. It's going to, you know, going to have a lot of, of, of negative implications. That extra two months of intensive finishing that they required to produce the same carcass weight. So that really, you know, depicts the efficiency difference between our Holstein Friesian and our high merit beef animal. The intermediate group, so these are the, they got fed one kilo a day as a calf, but they produced the eggs. There was no detectable difference in any of the metrics between the grass only group and the intermediate group. So that really, you know, answers the question on the first year at pasture that there was little advantage or there was no advantage of giving a kilo a day throughout the first grazing season to those calves. If we look at the high, the, the high group, so these are the animals that got a kilo a day as a calf, and we reintroduce concentrate from the 1st of July. I think this is a really interesting group, and it really shows the potential that is out there or the, the options that the high merit animals give us over the lower merit animal. So if you look at the, the early genotype within that group, they were produced, they were slaughtered at just over 20 months without going into a shed at the end of the second grazing season. Uh, they consumed 470 kilos of, of concentrate, but they produced a very much on spec carcass at 306 kilos, O equals on the grid, and a perfect fat score. If we look at our later or lower merit Angus animals, the same age of slaughter, but you must remember that our, our EBV was corrected for carcass weight. So that identified an animals at the same carcass weight that would be, you know, two to three weeks, a younger or older at age of slaughter. Um, so if we look at the carcass weight that they produce, they produced a carcass of nearly 30 kilos lighter um, and they were, they were only 269 kilos carcass weight as steers. So that's, you know, under our, our spec is 270. So half of them animals were out of spec in terms of weight. And, you know, if we were to take their heifer comrades, you know, they would be, you know, of a very, very light carcass weight. And, you know, I think, Light carcass weight really limits um, limits our ability to slaughter animals early. So we need to identify animals that can produce a carcass that is on spec at a younger age if we're to get you know national uptake of of uh, age of slaughter as a breeding objective. Uh, so really, I think that is really important that we we can see that it takes an in, an intensive indoor finishing period to get the, the lower merit Angus animal up to producing an on-spec carcass. Whereas we have the option, when we have a high merit uh, Angus for age of slaughter, we have the option of finishing them at the end of the second grazing season without the need of going indoors. So really what we could do, we could identify animals based on their genetic merit, that we could assign them to a certain type of feed management to allow them to express their full potential for age of slaughter, and, you know, qualify the animal to suit a particular system and really optimize our farm systems. And, you know, by reducing the age of slaughter and avoiding the intensive finishing period, you know, we have a pit of silage left over from that animal genotype group. How, you know, but however, that pit probably to, will be, be sold into the Holstein region system where we can see that despite being fed at pasture, they couldn't lay down enough flesh. So they were fed at pasture the same as Ang Angus's, but they had to go in for a further 138-day intensive indoor finishing period. They produced, you know, they had to consume in excess of a ton of concentrate and they produced 344 kilo carcass. So really we have to ask ourselves, 
you know, they produced a higher carcass weight, but at a cost. And if we look at it on a system basis, we're going to be able to carry fewer of them animals. So it would probably end up having a lower carcass output per hectare. And really, that is the metric that we're interested in is carcass output per hectare as influenced by the animal genotype. And, you know, that early animal, um, you know, I think offers the greatest flexibility. And, you know, carcass weight is going to be important. If we're to produce the carbon equivalent produced per kilo of beef, you know, we have to have animals that can produce a sufficiently heavy carcass, but at a younger age. And we'll get a dilution effect by ensuring that they produce a, a heavy enough carcass. Nikki, Nikki we're, we're interrupting sorry. you there, but um, we're, oh, you're coming to the conclusion. I just wanted to leave a little, a little bit of time for questions. Yeah, sorry, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so just, just to conclude, look, where our work is focused and I think there's a real opportunity by, by improving our emphasis on beef used on the dairy herd to future-proof both of those industries. Uh, and we can see, you know, high-merit beef genetics, they're low-cost but proven technology, you know, and they can be used through, they can be used this evening. If you have a cow bull in this evening, it will cost you no more to pick a, a, a good quality beef bull to use on that animal rather than uh, the bull of the day uh, and it's going to go a long way in helping to improve our sustainability across those multiple pillars and each herd you know has the opportunity to add further value at very little cost uh, and you know I just you know everyone needs to think you know what do dairy beef systems need and I think we need to build it you know we, we might necessarily get it they mightn't be demanding it exactly today but I think we need to build the product and build the market and then people will, you know, identify those animals and will develop these systems around them if they're available. So that's uh, my presentation for today. And look, we're, we're here. Um, we have a great team of, of technologists and students um, doing great work in dairy beef production and, and furthering age of slaughter. And look, we, 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 we're there to help. If anyone has any queries, they can get in contact. Thanks very much, Nikki, um, for that presentation. And if you might, just stop sharing your screen now and then um, we can revert back to the, to the, to the discussion. Um, Nikki, that was a very detailed presentation. Um, I, the two, there's a couple of questions coming in on the, on the chat, but, and I'll leave them to Pat. And I'd just like to, to welcome Pat to our uh, webinar this morning. Pat actually was supposed to be hosting, but uh, they had a, a power a, cut at 9.30. A, a, an, early, an early indication of the energy crisis in Wexford this morning. <laughs> but, Two, there was just two things, Nikki, and maybe they're a little bit outside of your uh, remit. But one, there were two statistics that stuck that, that struck me. Um, one was earlier on where you mentioned the thirty-nine percent, nearly forty percent attrition rate among um, farmers. And I know it's an ICBF figure. Have we any idea of where? I mean, if you, if you stop doing something, are they transferring to something else? You know, have we any idea of? Of, of why that is or well we yeah. probably know why but where are they going or what are they see i i think a lot of those are farms that would have another uh, another beef enterprise uh, in play oh. on the farm so they're typically probably suckler farms that went out and purchased calves see mm -hmm. how they get on with that system and you know through one reason or another you know they they, they, they chose to, to 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 opt out of that out of that system and look you will see it you, you'll come across a lot of farmers and that's really you know, we want to put in blueprints, the management blueprints that outline the type of management you need to put in place 
to 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 rear these calves and meet those targets um and also identify the genetics that that will work as well and give farmers you know the best possible experience of rearing calves um and look that that that, that is a challenge you know we'll be all well familiar with it but you know mm. i i think if we pull a lot of our efforts together you know i think we re- greatly can improve imp- improve that um you know we've a lot of herds now nearly all the herds we're buying calves from they're all vaccinating the, the dams to protect them against you know the different strains of of scour uh you know we can we better vaccination programs and herd health plans now to to combat the respiratory challenge uh, and you know if we didn't have our really diligent herd health plan in place we vaccinate every calf on a right uh, 24 hours after arrival we vaccinate intranasally to get a rapid uh rapid um effect to protect against different viral uh viral types of of respiratory challenge and if we didn't do those you know we would have massive challenges mm. um and really you know if we've low levels of specialization on farm or kind of you know dipping in and out of dairy calf to beef production we may not get uh, some of these uh, health protocols implemented as diligently as we as we have um and look that's you know a bad experience can can put people can put people off but i think we've we've great scope to you know it's bringing genetics health and the grassland nutrition all together and getting them yeah and one other stat that 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 hit me as well you know roughly a third of our calves are exported you know and we constantly hear of you know it could come under pressure it could come under threat you know there's always seems to be motions going through the european parliament about possibly putting an end to this i mean if something like that did happen could that have massive implications for for our systems you know taking that with a high high rate of attrition of farmers actually rearing the animals yeah i i i don't necessarily think i think if we've high enough quality calves i think there's there's demand here domestically for high quality beef calves if you look at the the you know dairy beef steers in particular have the highest uh, probability of producing an inspect carcass in terms of the age the animal is slaughtered at, the weight it's at, the confirmation grades, and the, the fat scores. So there's huge potential there for dairy beef. There's a great market for dairy beef. Do you know, it's availing of the, the, the highest value retail markets that are there. Um, so I think if we've the good enough calf quality early on in the season, you know, look, they're, they're all the lower value dairy males that are exported. Um, and I think we could, if we can convert them into high merit beef cross calves, that there is going to be more domestic demand for them here. And not necessarily, look, calf exports, you know, the animal is a lot younger. It's um, maybe a lot more vulnerable at that stage. You know, we could, there's very vibrant markets there for the export of older animals. So we, we, we could, you know, bring those animals into different categories and widen up and, and reduce our reliance on, on one or two key export markets for calves, bring forward a higher quality animal, and maybe at an older age, that can be exported to a wider range of destinations. But okay. I'd ask the question, is there more value to be got from some of these animals within our own shores? Okay, yeah, yeah. That's, that's and the, I think that's, yeah. that there is potential there. Yeah, yeah. Pat, we have a yeah. few technical questions there coming in because we're, we're, we're running... Uh, we're running low on time. 
Yeah, Nikki, one here. Uh, Nikki, excellent presentation. I'm a dairy farmer. What criteria do I need to be looking at to produce these early finishing steers? So as the dairy farmer, what 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 do I need to be doing? Yeah, no, no, a good question. And it's, it's great to get engagement from, from dairy farmers. Uh, look, I, I'd be looking, look, firstly, look at your dairy beef index. It'll identify a bull that has an appropriate calving, you know, that it'll show the, the level of, of, of calving difficulty for each of them. So really, I'd be looking at your dairy beef index and make sure that that desire that at least 50% of the overall index is coming from the beef contribution. And then from within that, you know, I, I, I pick animals with a high carcass weight because carcass weight in our in our figures as it is, it's corrected to a set age. So it's it's identifying that animal that can produce a heavier carcass at a certain age. So I think carcass weight is a really important one and carcass confirmation. So if you were to identify a high quality beef bull, I'd be saying he'd be plus 10 kilos for carcass weight and he'd probably be, you know, as close as possible to one or greater for carcass confirmation. So okay. th those would be just two selection criteria. And look, that farmer has to be happy with his own level of risk in terms of calving difficulty, gestation length, but he can tailor it to the cows, more mature cows, you know, you're capable of, of putting a, 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 a maybe a slightly harder calving bull on those. And in, in I suppose, management uh, decisions uh, for the dairy farmer, are you talking about them to, to move this forward uh, using beef AI or, are you, uh, or is it possible to do this uh, by buying the right stock bulls? Yeah, exactly. Look, I think we need to start using these beef bulls from the very start of the breeding season. So when you're typically AIing your, cow, your cows to breed your replacements. So I think it's going to be very much blended in. So you'll have a period of, of, of AIing. But, and I think with herds becoming so fertile, I think the bull power that would be needed if you are, you know, going to be generating, you know, 70% of your calf crop from beef sires, I think, you know, it has to be through AI in the, in the main because the bull power that you'd need to do, you know, really fertile herd, really compact, you know, it would be massive. But certainly, you know, improving the merit of our stock bulls is going to be really important as well. You know, they're going to play a role, you know, they're going to be let run at a certain stage on the majority of farms. So, if we can use the DBI to generate and breed bulls of higher genetic merit, it's going to have a, a, a positive on the stock bull market as well. And look, I think, you know, they, they're going to have a massive impact. So we, we can't, we have to, the same principles apply if it's, if it's a straw or if it's the bull, he needs to be a high merit animal, irrespective. Okay. And I suppose just a, a follow on from that, you're seeing more and more dairy farmers when they're selling uh, 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 potentially calves for, for replacements, the value of those replacements is being uh, uh, built around the EBI. Do you mm. see any possibility of incorporating that, that breed information, that, that genetic information in the pricing uh, and, and thereby returning uh, income to the, to the dairy farmer? Uh, on the basis of, of high quality beef animals? Yeah, I think, look, I, I, I'd be, look, I think we have to be conscious of the, the profitability challenge in terms of, of dairy beef, any beef production system. So I, I think I'd be, I think that the real value added is going to be from the, the, the repeatability of, of the calf purchase that selling the calf off farm in a timely fashion 
and making the savings on labor, calf housing, and you know, t- different things like that. Look, there obviously will be, if you do use much better sires, they will be of, of a slightly higher value. That will be re- reflected in the CBV of animal. Yep. Um, so I think, look, there can be, but I, I wouldn't be using a beef bull with the objective of just adding more onto your calf price because okay. I don't think, I think that's why we see the high attrition rate yep. because calves are generally overpriced relative to their potential. Okay. And um, so we have to be very conscious of that. A question there in relation to the, I know we're just coming up to, to time, yeah. in relation to the profitability of the, the different trials as opposed to the, the, the carcass weight, do you have a, an indication of that at this stage? Yeah, not not on that. We're, we're, we're no, we, we don't have that study. So we'll have a carbon and an economic figure. I think they're going to go hand in hand and we have loads of different combinations of the feed managements by the genotypes and there will be an optimum for each of them identified. I suppose just one one final point. Uh, if people are looking for more information on this, you're you're having an open day up there coming up. Absolutely, on the fifth of July, we're having the national uh, beef open day here at Chagas Grange. The animals from this study uh, will be on display. Uh, the data will be most up to date. Data will be presented as well as data from a range of other studies, a lot of other key technologies around age of slaughter, etc. You know, there's if you need to know anything about beef grassland etc it's going to be on display on the day so put that in the diary okay andy Nicky, Nicky, thank to... you very much for that presentation and with that second last sentence you just talked yourself into another webinar mentioning uh, economics and uh, carbon budget so unfortunately i'd say we'd be going we'd be going after you again no, thanks that's... very much for the presentation just a few quick things to finish with i just i didn't m- mention them at the start i'd just like to uh, give a shout out and uh, an acknowledgement really to Dairy Sustainability Ireland, Food Drink Ireland Skillnet and the National Rural Network who are our partners uh, in, in putting this uh, series together. Um, next week we're joined by um, Ted Massey and Lorraine uh, Leanne. Roach, Leanne Roach sorry, from the department uh, and they're going to talk about the actually the fifth nitrates action program and beyond. So uh, we're moving along with numbers of nitrates plans as well. Um, finally, I'd also like to thank um, our own colleagues and indeed Yvonne uh, Mahar, who's behind the scenes pressing all the buttons. I said there were some buttons being pressed when the power went in Wexford this morning, but <laughs> anyway, we got there uh, uh, in the end. Um, so I think I've uh, thanked and uh, told you all about next week. So have a nice weekend and hope to see you all again uh, next Friday morning. So, Nikki, thank you, and thanks, Pat, for the questions. So we'll see you all soon again. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagask.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.